You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to Joe Lysett live at the Secret Welsh Comedy Festival, which is not so secret anymore, but I'm going to persist in calling it that. Uh, This was a really, really entertaining conversation, very thoughtful, uh, which often I think a lot of you get in touch to say things along these lines, but um, sometimes the live shows can become a little bit more performative than the more reflective uh, uh, shows that we have when when there's no live audience there. And I think we navigated that path really well. I think we got lots of great stuff from Joe, uh, some really good technique stuff. And, uh, and he gave some very thoughtful answers. So uh, I hope you'll enjoy this very much. Just before we go into it, uh, I would like to announce officially, I'll tell you more about this later on, but for those of you who have been waiting for the compilation Break Glass in Case of Emergency, I'm very pleased to say that it is now available for free. You have to join the mailing list, but it is completely free, and uh, subscribers to the mailing list will tell you I don't email you very often, so there's almost no bother on your part. Um, largely through to administrative failures than anything else. Um, so the compilation Break Glass in Case of Emergency, this is designed to be uh, an uplifting, feel-good compilation from all of the, well, from the last few years, not certainly by no means all, it's about 45 minutes long. It's just a compilation of uh, 40 or so acts uh, over about 45 minutes worth set to original music by Steve Dunn from the Comedy Score podcast. And uh, it's just some really uplifting thoughts on creativity, dealing with it when gigs go wrong, when you get writer's block, when you're feeling jealous, when you get a bad review, stuff like that. And I think a lot of it is stuff that is applicable to the life of a non-comic. Uh, I think everybody can get a, a lot out of this. It's in ages in the offing. I don't know when I first mentioned it on the show. Um, but now it exists and you can download it for free from comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop. More on that later. Now, please welcome the very, very charming and very, very funny Joe Lysett. Here we are at Machancliffe Comedy Festival. You've got that right. How do you pronounce it? Machancliffe. Oh, very good. I saw you joke pronouncing it wrong in your show. Yeah, uh, well, it's fun, isn't it? It's an um, easy gag here at this festival. Too. Happy date. And, and I like to, I like to it's, do get all of them wrong, though. Sort of say, um, Owen Glindwer, which is Owen Glinder. Oh, I can't actually remember how you pronounce <laughs> oh. it. One of the venues. Yes, Plas. Oh, sort of, <laughs> plas. All of those things, yeah. Where are you in comedy at the moment? For people who might not uh, be aware of your work, people listening on the dark side of the moon, 
Where, where are you at the minute? I would say I am about three months before the end of my career. <laughs> so, no, um, I, I feel like I'm in a really good place at the minute. I, f I feel very creatively engaged. Um, but so, yes, uh, in terms of where I am, sort of the things that I'm doing... Uh, I'm doing lots of... I'm on tour, so I'm doing a tour of about sort of 500, 500-seater 500 venues, which is really lovely. And um, I'm also uh, just about to start recording a Radio 4 programme that I'm hosting, which is freaking me out. What's uh, that? What's the programme? It's called It's Not What You Know, and Miles Jupp used to host it. Oh, yeah, OK, right. Um, and so I'm now hosting hosting it. We're only doing four episodes because I think the Radio 4 are booking things in fours because it's a lot easier to throw them into a furnace than if they don't go very well. Um, uh, so that starts soon. And then developing some TV formats as host or kind of as a main thing in it. But that's uh, kind of not quite sort of materialised into anything solid yet. Okay. But that's sort of ongoing. Um, and then I've also just started to get into drag so that's uh, that's a new side to the biz. Well, it might not be part of the biz; it might just be like another thing on the. Oh, and then I'm writing a book as well. I'm so fucking busy. Why am I doing that? <laughs> I uh, yeah. So there's lots going on. I feel okay. like I've, I feel like I've got about ten jobs. Well, maybe appropriately then. You when I saw your work in progress show here earlier on, which everyone this year is calling a whip. We've all decided to call work in progress is a whip. Oh, you're doing a whip later on. Yeah. it's freaking me out. Um, but I saw, your, I saw your whip. Yes, you did. I got my teeth into your whip. And, um, All right, Stu. You have an office. Yeah, I got an office. You casually mentioned that you've got an office. I know almost no comedians who have an office. Can you paint a picture for us of your office? Yeah, of course. Uh, there's a, a, an area called Digbeth in Birmingham, which is sort of a, a kind of what I imagine East London was like before it was East London, like just on the cusp between being rough and a cool place. There's a lot of graffiti, and there was a shooting there, I think, two weeks ago. So it's that, like, that kind of area. But it's full of, like, creatives and just interesting things going on. Um, and there's, there's a series of offices in there, which I started renting about two years ago. Just, it's like a little box, and it's got a little balcony, which I have a hammock on. So you get an idea of how much work actually happens in there. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, yeah, I go there... Whenever I'm in Birmingham, I'm normally in the office, and I sometimes have comics to come and like write with me and little kind of sessions in there with other people. But generally, it's just a space. Because what I found as I was waking up every morning, when I wrote my second show, I was waking up every morning, it, uh, lying in bed, going, "Well, feasibly, I could just stay here until I've got to go out for the gig," and I would. <laughs> I could just stay in bed and I'd like work on the laptop, go down, make a coffee, get back to bed. Because I love lying down and I love sleeping. Really good at sleeping, and. Um, and so I thought, actually, sort of formalising this in a way. And I'd heard Gary Delaney had done something similar or he'd rented a desk or something, and I thought, well, that's interesting. And the place where it is um, had always seemed, when I was younger, as, like, a really cool place in Birmingham. I always wanted to be there. And so it sort of just seemed like a quite romantic idea. And actually, I do really love it, and it's made me a lot more productive and kind of really formalised the working day. So I know that once I've done my work in there, I can leave not feeling like I've got to constantly be working because I think that's the thing with comics is that you sort of feel sometimes that you've got to be generating stuff all the time and alert and I think that's when I get really exhausted because I think well actually I've not produced enough today and that isn't really how creativity works I think how so what 
what was the situation? What did your working environment look like before you had an office? Well, yeah, bed. Just bed. bed. Or like, or coffee shops. But then there was a coffee shop I used to go to when I was, yeah, again, right in the second show in Birmingham. And I basically ended up getting to know everybody that worked there. I'm now still quite good friends with pretty much everyone who used to work there. A lot of them don't anymore. But got no work done because I'd go in, sit at the, basically at the side of the bar and get the laptop out or a notepad and then people would start talking to me and I'd go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you don't, you're not actually producing anything until like the last half hour that you're in there. So is it fair to say you've got quite a good work ethic as a comic? If you're the sort of person who's got an office, even if you, you're the sort of person who has to get themselves an office otherwise they won't get anything done, that's quite a sort of slightly workaholic work ethic, isn't it? Um, possibly, but I think it's... It, it's how you define work, isn't it? Because I sort of don't... When it's flowing, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like really good fun. It's when... It's where, when it feels like work is when you've got an Edinburgh coming up and, or something, a big deadline, and it feels really pressured and um, like it matters, I suppose, too much. And that's when it feels like work. But actually, at the minute, because I've got that space and, it, and it's a fun thing to do and it doesn't feel like... I'm in bed having to do this in order to generate the stuff. It, it doesn't feel like work anymore in a weird way. Okay. Some days it does, obviously, but like it, it's a, le- a lot less so. When you, you talked about flowing there, and I really agree with that, that it doesn't feel like work when it's flowing, but I feel like 90% of my working hours are me trying to instigate a, a flow of mm. some sort. Yeah, and 90% of my life is me worrying about the work I've got to do and the fact that I'm not doing it yet yeah. so do you have any ways that you can trick yourself into finding that kind of flow yeah I've started doing this thing called um, the Pomodoro technique I don't know if anyone else has probably loads of people have spoken to you about it I think it's because it's how long to make a Pomodoro sauce is that right I never knew where the thing came from this is where you have a, an app on your phone or a timer well, and you do 25 minutes yeah. and then you get 5 minutes of dicking about time yeah 5 to 50 um, <laughs> uh, what it is is I found when I was writing so this is the thing so the first Edinburgh show I wrote felt fine really because it had been whatever five six years of generating material and then that felt pretty easy to put together in hindsight probably it wasn't at the time but it didn't feel like hell second show felt like hell because there was one year to do it I didn't really know what my writing technique was didn't really know what I was doing and it was really cobbled together and it wasn't long enough and I didn't enjoy performing it I was nervous every night going out doing it um and it, like, it really just was uncomfortable and horrible and then I had two years off between that and writing this show which I loved doing and I, towards the end when I worked out my rhythm was so fun to write because I was like oh yeah I just do that thing that I love doing it was, it's when I kind of realised that writing letters and doing stuff like that was kind of the thing that I get most pleasure out of um, so the Pomodoro helped because with the second show I was going oh I've got this seed of an idea and I'd sit down to write something about it. And then if nothing generated... I didn't generate anything funny in the first five minutes, I'd go, oh, well, that's actually a shit idea. Let's go on to the next one. And you'd, then you'd get a bit, like, sad. And so you'd go on Facebook for a bit and you'd sort of distract yourself. And you wouldn't get anything done. And so um, the Pomodoro means that I get that seed of an idea and I'll focus in on that for 25 minutes and won't allow myself to deviate from too much on that topic, but, like, really focus in. And you know you've got that deadline, which seems accessible 
or the 25 minutes, he's not quite say 25 minutes. Um, and even if the idea itself became something else, I'd normally get something from it. And so the day started to look like a productive thing as opposed to just this like mess of ideas where you go, well, I feel like I did achieve something on that, but actually I need to do some more on it. And you yeah. can go, the, what I do in my notes is if I, um, on my like reminders, is I'll go like, do two Pomodoros on this as a to-do as opposed to um, do, some, do writing. some writing. Yeah, right. So it seems like a, a checklist. Okay. I've realised like lists are very helpful for me, which... I really wanted to, I resisted for a long time because I felt like lists were what you did when you were like a housewife I didn't want to be like it seemed a bit much yeah um, but it I hadn't really I've done the Pomodoro thing but I hadn't applied it to one Pomodoro per idea force yourself to wring all of the stuff out of the idea that's yeah. a really smart idea well, because, it, because it's the desperation in the last five minutes where you go oh, well, oh what else can I get out of fish and chip shops um, oh, and then it's in that last few minutes when you go oh that funny and you thing you overreach and you come up with something original yeah so it sort of artificially gives you the panic of a live work in progress show where you're for the sake of the audience trying to find something it gives you that because for the sake of filling the time the last five minutes of that 25 okay so let's go back to the very beginning of your uh, comedy so who were you as a kid were you a funny kid because you're someone who I think on stage demonstrates an incredible sort of ease. You know, you seem very, very, very comfortable in front of audiences. You're, very, you're one of those people who I think you... And I don't mean to sort of detract from the obvious work that you do, but um, you're someone who just seems like, oh, everything I say is funny. <laughs> I'm an arrogant prick. No, 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 no. <laughs> not that you behave like that. No, you're no, someone yeah, who no. I watch and I go like, oh, God, this joke. You know, a lot of people go, if you've worked well enough at comedy, if you've worked hard enough, if you're good enough at it, you make it look easy. Mm. You really make it look easy. Well, that's very kind. Um, and that's what I always sort of wanted to do when I started doing comedy is to create the illusion that it was just oh this is a thing that I just thought of and or I'm just sort of working on this and just working it out as we go along a bit not in a kind of Ross Noble kind of way where it's like oh anything could happen in the room but just that it's falling from my mind I didn't want the audience to ever see the joins really too much yeah I sometimes um, think I'm obsessed with I, like I really want them to get that I've worked hard and I yeah, think that's no, a really yeah, terrible yeah. instinct there is a bit of that as well though like when I write a good callback and I know it, it's going to be obvious to the audience that I've thought of it before that I hadn't just said the stuff out loud I do kind of go mm. you know like, there's a bit of like there is a bit of pride there I suppose um, but to answer your original question about whether I was funny as a kid I didn't think I was and then I found my yearbook when I was uh, at secondary school and I was voted as the funniest student so I must have been but not didn't think it I didn't I don't remember being particularly witty or doing wisecracks at school or that, like that but that seems to me as a to be for a comic to have been fo- voted funniest student and not really to remember it or for it to have made much of an ins- uh, an impact well, I, I That's- I wanted to be an actor. Yeah, sort of wanted to be an actor. I watched The O.C. quite religiously as a child um, and wanted to live in Orange County and be any of the characters, really. I wanted Seth Cohen as my father um, because he was just so cool. 
and then just be, like live in that house and have a lovely life. And I think that's what got me into acting because I wanted also to have like serious moments where everyone realised I was really serious and deep. And so I didn't. I think I didn't want to be funny at that point because I wanted to be seen as a serious, thoughtful person. Because because you wanted to be playing characters who were serious and thoughtful, or because you wanted to be relishing the attention. Yeah, of I was like people person. going, "Wow, he's so deep." Basically, yeah. I think is what I wanted. I people think that like, is most actors. Yeah, yeah. But then uh, I tried acting at uni, and God, it's full of balance, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's it, and also you're at the mercy of ev- like so many people. Directors, I think, are a weird breed. I know quite a few of them, and I've got a lot of friends uh, that are directors because studied drama and English. So, but I just think it's a weird mindset because it's like power, isn't it? It's like I want you to move over there, and I want you to, and it just all of it. I just it was a bit much. I was just a bit like, and then when stand up came up, I was like, oh, I can just do this, and nobody can stop me or get in the sort of as long as I can get the gigs. It's up to me what I do, which is so refreshing and lovely. So when you say when stand up came along, what was what form did that take? Were you watching stand up as a as a kid, as a younger person? Were you... Yeah, I remember really loving Russell Brand, and sort of every time he had a something happening, I was like so excited to see that, and early Alan. As well, I used to love all of Alan Carr's stuff, um, and being genuinely really excited about it, and loving Out of Ten Cats as well. Just thinking, this how do, how are they so funny all the time? Um, a good edit, I've since learnt. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, so I kind of I did love comedy, but I, it didn't ever think like I didn't ever think, oh well, that would be a feasible job. In a, I yeah, I, didn't, I just didn't even think of it really, and it was just an experiment at university. I think it came up at gig. Well, actually, I'm, I'd love to get back to my mental health, uh, mental health, <laughs> the mental state that I was in. <laughs> we're, we're, now this I'm is torn. early for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> my mental state when I was starting stand up because I went along to watch a live gig at the Comedy Store in Manchester. Uh, the um, what's it? Were they gong you off? King Gong. King Gong. And uh, got really pissed with my friend, and it was Mick Ferry hosting. And he said, "Does anyone want to in the audience want to give it a go?" And I'd done that classic thing. Oh well, I can do better than this shit. And um, went up and couldn't, and had um, uh, just a really dreadful like opening gag. Um, and then just that you'd prepared in advance, or that you thought of like on the way up. I can't remember. What was your gag? Well, come on, you've got to remember. Tell us. Um, it was, uh, I said, just before I start, can everyone have a quick look for Madeline? Um, <laughs> I didn't want to do it, but there you go, I've done it, Matt. Um, and it, it got that reaction, yeah. Um, and then there was a sort of, but like a bit of laughter in the room, like a bit of like, oh, that's interesting, where's he going to go with this? And then I was pissed on cider, so I went come on guys and pointed to the comedy store it's a comedy gig and then obviously that's not helping you and then I just went I've got nothing else so and then I walked off I wasn't even gonged off and tripped yeah, up was, sorry, that, that's, a, that's an essential component of your origin yeah. I walked off at the gong show and then tripped as I went so like it was just like so many levels of humiliation and I just felt so embarrassed and a couple of friends were there and they kind of couldn't look me in the eye and just was so mortified so I wonder whether because it was only a few months after that where I then did my first proper gig whether I was then desperate to seek, like, no, I can do this. Like, I, I know I, I failed that time. Whether there was something in me then that kind of gave me a little bit of energy to have a proper go at it. I don't... But I can't remember, really, what I actually felt. I remember feeling dreadful. 
and then doing another gig which went a lot better and going like ah relief that um that is a very unusual way round. I think most of the comics I talk to would say that their first gig was amazing and then their second, third, fourth or fifth That's was a horrific death. But by that time they'd had a good one, they had one in their back pocket. Yeah. But in your case it was the other way round. Yeah. Whereby you were clawing your way back on stage to prove you could do it. So do you, if you don't remember the exact sort of emotional state you were in at the time, what, what do you think it meant? How old were you when you did that gig? 19 what do you think it meant to the 19 year old Joe to master that environment what did what did it mean to you um it wasn't about mastering the environment necessarily it wasn't about like yeah um, I may have revealed too much of myself with that question yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) I didn't want to I didn't want to like um I think it was just to um scrape back some dignity basically just to go no, I know I wasn't very good then, but I'm sort of basically... Apolo- my whole career has been an apology to those people in that room, <laughs> I suppose. I don't know. That, I think that gave... Yeah, as I said, it gave me the initial energy, uh, that kind of uh, desperate energy to go, no, I can do this. Because you kind of have to have a bit of that slight madness to then, for the first few gigs, to go through the, the nerves of it all, I think. There had to have been something, some void there. I always said, like, after the sort of first year in of doing stand-up to people, that I felt a lot happier in social situations after I'd started doing stand-up because the um, pressure that I put on myself to be funny in those situations diminished. That's interesting because, actually, that, I must have felt that. Because now, these days, I don't ever feel like in social situations. I feel like I should be polite and try and be funny when it's suitable, but I don't feel the, the desperation to sort of show off like I used to. And so you did used to have that. Uh, yeah, that kind I of sort of forgotten that. And now I'm saying it. I'm like, yeah, actually, I remember going to parties thinking like, here we go, make everybody love you. Like, so that was a yeah. sort of thing. And I don't really have that anymore. I'm sort of quite happy to be in the corner now. When did that, did that go, do you think, as soon as you started doing gigs? Or was it like a, a year in? Because I think that's fascinating. I think a lot of mm. comics, a lot of uh, humans suffer from... I'm not saying those are two different groups. Um, <laughs> you can draw your own inference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of people have that sense of, like... You, we all know how tiresome <clears throat> it is when a comedian smashes a gig and then is intent on smashing the car journey home. And you're like, oh, oh, yeah, come yeah. on. No, I... Yeah. What's the question? So, well, the question... I don't know what the question was. It was about how long it took you, because I think maybe that's a good insight into, into the you on stage, is you are... There is no... What I, what I meant by that ease... There's no trace of desperation. It's like, no, 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 I've already, I've already won this. I've already, con- you know. Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, there is definitely internally the desperation going on. But it's be- I suppose because my style has naturally developed into a sort of slightly relaxed thing that if I start to appear unrelaxed on stage, I know that, that it's, it's, a, it's more of an experiencing where I know if I start to do that, then I lose the faith of the audience. So then looking like it's just all sort of happening keeps that faith but internally you're going oh, fuck, they haven't laughed at that bit so that bit's not really going to work and you're doing it all in the okay. I feel like there's about four threads of thought going on in my head when I'm doing stand-up I don't know about you Go on. where you've got like the actual thing happening in front of you and then your kind of monologue of what you're saying and by what, in, what's happening in front of you is you're sort of remembering things in the room and trying to keep them present in your mind so that if you need to call back to them for then that, they remain relevant in your mind and your sort of short-term memory then there's the like oh am i going to get home tonight because the m 
six has got road <laughs> and then there's the other thread which is like I know it's a sort of like ethereal thing going on where you're like oh my god I feel so connected with these people or oh god I fucking hate these people or whatever it is so it's very heightened thing that's going on when you're up there but all of it is trying to get to a point where you're just going oh yes and then let me tell you about my bisexuality like and it just but actually what's happening is a lot more obviously so, I mean, I'm quite relieved to hear that there is some desperation going in there, mm. go, going on under totally, the... Yeah, and yeah. what is the nature of that desperation? What, what is, do you think, the worst thing that could happen to you on stage? What is it? When it's, when it, like, if they don't laugh, that means what? Um, it means... Like, deep down. Yeah, I think it's when... You, uh, the worst thing is if they disagree with you. If you've, uh, and I think not laughing means that there's been a lack of a logic being worked out on their part so you're as in you haven't given them su- uh, sufficient information for them to work out that you're joking about something and that it's not actually what you think or that it doesn't resonate with them because they don't agree um, is that, the, so wor- like is that if, the worst thing that I can think, happen to you on yeah, stage I think so, so like not yes, agree with you well no not, I don't mean not agree with me so it's not like um, you know, if I say I don't like cats and everyone's like oh we bloody love cats like it's not like that it's a, uh, they don't agree with I suppose who I am. I suppose that they don't agree that I should be as I am. That there's like because um, uh, there's been a couple of gigs where like there's been sort of yeah sort of like homophobic kind of things, and that's really scary then because you go oh well that's part of who I am, and um, that I don't even know if that's the worst actually because that, that's quite empowering in a weird way where you go well I will show you how wrong you are with logic and. Logic and lols. Um, I don't quite know how to articulate what I'm trying to say, which is the story of my bloody life. <laughs> um, but I think it is... It, is it disagreeing? It's like, yeah, just being sort of people going like, oh, that's not right, oh, that's embarrassing. Kind of, that's the fear. And, w- and what would that mean to you if that were true, if it were embarrassing? What, what's, like, the kind of worst-case scenario? Well, i sort of go into a bit of a shell, or I'd l- lash out and make it worse. I had this sort of feeling at one point, if I ever had a death, that I would jump up and down for the remainder of whatever my set length was, shouting, I'm not funny. Because (laughs) I found the idea of that really funny because it's obviously so subjective. So by you, you're as the comic going, I'm not funny, constantly, I thought was quite... I thought it was quite funny. (laughs) I did did try it at one point and it was not funny. Uh, uh, Yeah. I think it would be... I think I'd find it very difficult to deal with. I think it would... Because however much one prides oneself on being, oh, I'm all sorted and I'm a, you know, happy, chilled-out person, that is all integrally linked to the way that you've set up life for yourself. Because there's obviously a reason why I continue to do it, which is it feeds me in some way. Um, And so if the work sort of started to... um, Diminishing sort of people not respecting it as much as they do, then I would be yes, very much sad, saddened by that. So this is Joe. A huge pleasure to talk to Joe, and I'm very lucky to be part of, or certainly uh, doing some audience warm up for his uh, his first live DVD recording. That's happening this week live at the Duchess Theatre. And if you have seen Joe's act in the last year or two, you will understand why that is such a delicious venue for him to be performing at. Um, I'm not sure when the DVD will be released, but keep your eyes peeled for that. And uh, you can catch up with Joe all over social media and Facebook and Google his own website. I think believe he used to be a designer, and uh, his uh, his website is 
par excellence. It's really laugh out loud funny on the first visit. So do check that out. And of course, uh, as you will hear on this episode, uh, his book Parsnips Buttered uh, is available either now or very soon indeed. Probably by the time you hear this, it will be available. So check that out on Amazon or wherever you buy your things. And if you are an Amazon customer, why not visit it via comedianscomedian.com? There's a little Amazon affiliates box at the bottom of the, the homepage. And if you are thinking of uh, buying a thing anyway, you can buy it at no extra cost to you. It gives a little kickback to this show and supports the podcast in that way. If you are a donator to this show, then thank you very much. If you're a monthly subscriber, thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you would like to join the ranks of the monthly subscribers, you can go to comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate. And you can set a regular monthly donation of a pound or two pounds, five I think we're still on one person doing ten, and that person is a bloody legend. Uh, or whatever you can, whatever you can afford, whatever you can spare, whatever you think is worth the enjoyment and the interest and the invigoration, the intellectual inquiry that you get from uh, from these podcasts. You can uh, send me your thanks in cash form if you can afford it. If not, then simply give me uh, an honest review on iTunes. And why not make it a five-star one while you're there? Um, I think we're about 13 people off 500 five-star reviews, so please pile in. Um, and, of course, the main thing, the main way you can support this show is simply to subscribe to it and then share it with a friend. Grab their device, download the podcast app if they don't already have one, navigate to this podcast, subscribe for them, and uh, help them find uh, a favourite act that they'll enjoy listening to. So those are all the ways you can support the show. And now the show can give something back to you, something else, something further, perhaps. Uh, Break Glass in Case of Emergency is now available to download for free from comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop. As I said at the top of the show, the original music, uh, stirring music, it was likened to a positive Trent Reznor. Um, so by one listener who uh, was testing the, the download system for me. Um, Steve Dunn is your guy. And he, with along with Joel Domit, who has uh, been on this show before, is a great friend of mine and of the show. Uh, they do the Comedy Score podcast, so check that out as well. It's very, very funny. I did an early episode of that, and I think it's as good a starting point as any. Joel and Steve dick about with the guest. And then the guest tells a story at the end of the episode, and Steve scores it before the episode is released, so it has live music behind it. I twisted his arm and made him do it for um, uh, for the whole 45 minutes. It's five separate tracks, but I've bundled them together on the MP3. And you can download that from comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop. You will also see on that page when you land there that you can now purchase via Bandcamp for the princely sum of only £3. Uh, but you can always pay extra if you'd like that to be your contribution to the show. Uh, you can download Extra Life, which is my show, my Edinburgh show from 2014. The most recent tour show will be available soon. But as you know from listening to this show, for, my, for me, soon is very much a movable feast. It will be available certainly before the end of the year. But for now, why not listen to Extra Life? There's some great jokes on there about robots, melons... Uh, my desperate desire to have a baby, so uh, you can uh, regard that as part one of the Boutros trilogy. If you saw, uh, if you saw uh, last year's show, or indeed a preview of this coming one, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I'm really proud of it, man. Listening back to it, the, the end bit, I properly laughed at, um, which is astonishingly self-indulgent even by my standards. Two little plugs. The Ballam Free Fringe, of course. We mentioned that last week. It's to support the PBH Free Fringe, and it's at the Bedford Pub in Ballam. Uh, 50 shows over three different rooms. Absolutely brilliant venue. If you're in London on Friday the 29th to Sunday the 21st of July, then go along there, support PBH's Free Fringe, and see such fabulous acts as Chris Coltrane, Richard Gadd, Danielle Ward, John Luke Roberts, Pippa Evans, Kerry Marks, Trevor Locke, Luke Benson... 
Abby Roberts and many more besides. Um, so it's a big fundraiser. I go up to Edinburgh with the PBH Free Fringe. I'm up there with them this year and I have done a couple of times in the past as well. Uh, a really exciting organisation and the inventors, of course, the original and best uh, of the Free Fringe organisations. Thank you to everyone helping with the show. Uh, thank you. A special mention to Tom DL, who's a listener who is helping me sort out the, the mailing list. Uh, he's very, very good for that. So I really appreciate your help, Tom. And Johnny Mouncer is this week's stand-in editor while Nathan Wood takes a break. James Hingley has been helping me out with all the uh, MailChimp and website stuff as well. Thank you, James. Um, and uh, I just want to give... Uh, I'll give a special mention to a listener called Ryan at the end of this show. That's all for now. Let's get back to the excellent... Joe Lysett. Well, let's talk about the different strands that you were talking about, the, um, the different types of work that you do, because you've got stand-up, stand-up, yeah. and you've got the letters that you started doing. So tell us about the first one of those that you wrote, because that's kind of, that has created its own momentum now, hasn't it? Yeah, well, the first one I did was ages ago, I think, which, well, actually, the, I did, it's, it's, as, it's not letters, it's like online correspondence, yeah. I suppose which started with a routine which I used to do about speaking to people on Grindr where just sort of baiting people on Grindr um, when they'd say, oh, can you send me a picture? I'd send them a picture of an owl and stuff like that. <laughs> just, like, just stupid stuff like that, which was one of my early routines. And then there was a thing after I did my first kind of big TV show, which was called Epic Win, which I say is a big TV show. It was on BBC One, but it was not commissioned again quite rightly uh, <laughs> and I got some hate mail on the first the first episode went out and I got some hate mail maybe an hour or so later and I was at Edinburgh doing that second show I think so like it was a real ball of like oh god I fuck this um, and so that what was the nature of the hate mail what were they taking issue with uh, oh gosh um well, what was the like sentence? what is there to hate? What, do you know what, I mean? what was the sentence? Um, stick your posh voice back up your horse-faced mother's cunt was, the, uh, <laughs> was my favourite line in it. Um, and so I wrote a whole thing about it and how I kind of okay. um, yeah, kind of responded to it. And then that that uh, that was what I didn't really do any more after that. And then what was the next thing that I did? I think I did. I started doing little bits and bobs. Um, with varying degrees of quality and it was just things like generally when a company had annoyed me I'd send them some abuse back kind of but I think it was a thing with T-Mobile where I sent them they put my bill up without sort of warning me and I sort of sent them a massive sign that said shit off T-Mobile it wasn't very clever stuff but like it was just sort of me being angry and then uh, it was, I suppose it must have been Cat's Countdown where they were so useful on there when I started doing that that um, I started sort of going, oh, well, actually, I've got a bit more effort into writing these and do loads of them and see what comes back from them. Um, that might... Because you've really developed a style within them. They're not just abusive. Oh, yeah, now they're, like, they're more weird. They're, they're really weird. They're yeah. really, so t- talk to us about the development of that style. Like in the, in the, in the whip that you did uh, earlier today, yeah. the, the missing cat... Yeah. With a picture of a fox. I don't want to. I won't give away any more than that. I'm going to sort of murder the bit. Yeah. But tell me about the the sorts of decisions. Like when you're writing them, they exist live in the moment. They're always verbatim and they're always true. And that's exactly what you wrote. Oh, um, ish. Like there's uh, there's a lot of embellishing going on in terms of um, what I said and what they said, and there's quite a lot of kind of chopping about with because a lot of it's boring. So like. I had a whole thing in this show about a, a porn star that I emailed called Isis Taylor, 
um, who I confused with the terrorist group ISIS. <laughs> and we did a bit of email. I, I emailed her to sort of say, please stop bombing, uh, not bombing Syria, taking over Syria and Iraq. And then she came back to me with something that was funny. And then I went back to her, and then her response wasn't that good, and then my response wasn't that good back to that. So I sort of chopped around those. Okay, so you get to have your cake and eat it in terms of what you present. Because, you know, I'm telling a story, so I don't want to waste the audience's time by saying, well, then she sent this one, which, for the sake of truth, I would read to you, but it will waste everyone's time. Um, (laughs) So there's a bit of that going on. But, um, yeah, uh, the Fox thing, that comes from just because... But the, the weird thing, just as, I suppose, come. I just I've started to really like weird, find weird things funny. Not weird. Weird is a too sort of broader thing. I don't really know how to define it, but in terms of what it is that I find funny. But with that, so it's a. I, I put a sign on my office window, uh, office snap frame saying, "Have you seen this cat?" And it's just a photograph of a fox that I took. <laughs> and I don't know why it makes me laugh. I don't, but it made me laugh doing it. And it, like, I was sat in the office laughing at myself. Um, I don't know why. And I think it's also the picture of the fox I took when I was walking through London, and it was just this fox. And I find foxes really funny as an animal as well, because there's just something a bit sort of pathetic about them. They're sort of going through bins. I don't know. It's just like I just found it really funny. So that's sort of where that came from. And so then. With those ones, it is often just like whatever falls out of my mind at that time when that email comes in, and I go, I love it when the re- when the reply comes in, like I get this like burst of adrenaline where I'm like, oh, what the fuck can I do now? Like, is it, there is a real. That's what I mean about enjoying that process now, as opposed to finding it such a sort of slog before, because it's so um, it's fun, really good fun, like emailing annoying people. And is that is that does that form part of the book? Or is the, the book books, a lot of that? The, okay. the book's a lot of that. The book's presented as a self-help book that won't give you any help. And each chapter is like how to contest a parking fine, and then it's a bit of prose about parking fines, comedy prose, and then here is an example, and then it's the parking fine thing that I did on Cats Countdown. Um, and then there's a few other chapters which are like a, a bit more kind of loose. Um, but that's generally the gist of it. Okay. So talking about the stand-up then, when you first did Live at the Apollo... Yes. Like, is that such a sort of signature mm. uh, job, isn't it? As a, as a stand-up, you go, this is... So a lot of work, presumably, went into the decision as to which bits to do yeah. on that set. So talk us through you assembling that set. Well, that was... I said to Hannah, my agent kind of half choking before I was booked for it maybe a year before I was booked for it so if I ever did Live at the Apollo I'd quit because um, that seemed to be when I was younger the pinnacle of stand-up like getting to do that was the biggest thing you could do um, and so I just the way I did the set there's a friend of mine um, uh, who's a director called Edward Stambouillian who's the most normal director I've ever met um, in that like he's not a lunatic power mad lunatic um, and he helps me sort of with my stuff, basically. Uh, okay. Sort of a bit of a mentor. And uh, we went, went to uni together. And he weirdly saw that first gig at the uh, comedy store where I died on my ass. He was one of the friends who came along. Um, and he and I, because he knows my stuff so well, sort of just went through what um, the best stuff was, basically. Because I hadn't really done any stand-up on telly before that. And so the set naturally came out of that, really. Um and then just did gig after gig after gig I must have done about 30 
warm-up gigs specifically of that set of that yeah. set for Lighted Fire um, and then it was it, yeah that was a, a dream of a, an evening really it went I had a lovely gig felt really kind of good about it and then um, just had loads of friends there as well so it was kind of it was everything I sort of wanted it to be and more really um, but then I didn't quit so yeah and have you have you had less positive experiences of doing stand up on TV have you come across uh, like things with the with the edit when you've not been happy with the edit or things where you've been sort of thrown on the night not really um, I've not done lots of stand up on TV the only issue I did have is when I did Sunday Night at the Palladium I had a routine which I can't remember the specifics of it but I remember there was a routine that involved um, a gym instructor calling me a puff and because it was ITV one kind of prime time Sunday night they said oh you can't say that because um, that would be offensive to our audience and I went back to them and said well that's okay because I mean, even though puff would be the best word there because it's, it's got a, like, a kind of nice aggression to it that he would naturally say it. I can think, oh, yeah, queer, gay, any of those will work. And they're like, oh, no, we can't have any of those. And so then I was a bit like, oh, well, so I can't have... Somebody can't be calling me gay and then I pick it apart. And they were just worried and nervous about it. And in the end, we had to change it to something that, that one of their lawyers sort of had decided was a good idea, which just didn't work in the room and I knew it wouldn't, so they edited it out. But I remember just being a bit like... Mm, that really didn't need to happen mm. you know? and, and at the time I was really cross about it and I've sort of uh, with a bit of perspective I'm sort of yeah I don't sort of kind of mind I understand that they're just kind of covering everybody's backs but um, at the time I just thought that's a bit silly really it just seemed a bit like yeah. um, weird that they would try and cover their backs in that way sort of preempting that some fucking idiot's going to send an email into ITV part of me thought about setting up a fake email <laughs> of course it did complaining about my own set I should do that actually that'd be funny <laughs> sending a complaint to the BBC about myself about yourself I've, yeah I think the reason I stopped myself from doing that is because that like must lead to madness at some point when you're like running a campaign against yourself <laughs> I don't know what that actually means it'll be very hard if anyone ever does run a sustained campaign against you be very hard for you to convince everyone that it isn't you yeah, doing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. the boy who emailed Wolf yeah so your uh, so in terms of your stand up which bit of your stand up would you say is the routine you're most proud of like which bit do you get most pleasure from doing like not not a kind of recounting of an email but like an actual bit of stand up stand up um, good question I think there's a routine in this show which I'm not thrilled with I don't think it's the um, the best bit of stand up it could be I never do but I was really it made me very excited because the first time that I thought oh actually I can make a point and still be funny I've got a routine about um, being uh being offered cocaine and I, I, it's one part of this industry that I find very um, makes me a bit sad really is that there's a lot of drug use not as much as people might think but there are there's a lot of people particularly in telly that take a lot of drugs and I don't mind that per se I don't mind people taking drugs but I know that coke is just like bad for um, for humanity um, and so uh, I wrote a routine which kind of involves a bit of a lecture like that but there's a big punchline at the end and it gets a 
big laugh if it's worked correctly and I remember being it's a bit of a clumsy routine the way I get to it but um, I remember being like oh fuck I can sort of say things that are actually I can seem deep like I wanted to be in the AC but actually <laughs> uh, but actually do it with a joke at the end of it so it's sort of slipped in the, so it's the seed of the idea is put into the mind and then you forget because there's a punchline and I think going forward that's what I want to work harder on and work more on is go oh well how can I make more ideas like that which and make more points like that without it seeming like it's being rammed down the throat I suppose so coming to drag talk, talk to us about drag because um, you were doing when I saw you I bumped into you in the corridor yesterday or two days ago in yeah. drag that was pre the showcase set yeah of Nigella Farage mm. so <laughs> for those of us who didn't see it uh, you, you are in the habit of doing a kind of a new and odd character every year at Mac yeah ish yeah I mean I don't do it deliberately for Mac I just sort of when an idea comes to me and it's consistently it'll be one joke maximum spread out <laughs> over five minutes um, and it normally is to do it's, it's always silly and it's normally to do with some sort of um, repetition of an idea that becomes more farcical as it goes on um, but this one I, I just become really I think I've made, I made friends with a guy called Scotty who's like a performance artist and he does this sort of weird mixture of drag and just sort of like making himself look really bizarre and but he's really funny with it and there's a real lightness to it and um, just hanging around with him and then there's sort of more drag queens at Glastonbury last year and just seeing that world I just thought oh this is there's something really interesting about it and sort of um, also in Melbourne a few years back I can't remember his name but there's a brilliant Australian comic who did a whole thing about makeup and how absurd it is and the, the crux of the routine is that he's introducing makeup for the first time to his girlfriend and trying to explain to his girlfriend oh, nice. he's bought her this makeup and she goes oh what is it and he goes oh well you put it on for special occasions and it's to cover your face up and she goes oh well do I just wear it then he's like, oh no you wear it all the time and she goes are you wearing some and he goes oh no no I'm perfect like, yeah. and it's, it's a really thought, well thought out bit of stand up and I've completely bastardised it there but I just the whole thing of makeup and uh, how to sort of present yourself as a woman if you're kind of um, yeah if you're a woman I just hadn't really thought of and I just thought well actually let's try drag and, and it's not necessarily drag actually what I was doing it's, I'm trying to sort of look like a woman not fully like, because drag is a different thing, I suppose. I'm, I'm interested in the um, definitions of those things as well. I'm so new to it, I'm probably um, describing it all very badly, and people who've been in the profession for years will be like, well, that's not what it is. Um, but yeah, so I just thought I'd try it, and I found it very... Fat, like, when I did it, I did it in Edinburgh the first time. It's very interesting, the way that sort of people... I actually found it interesting here as well, just wandering around. There was very much a sense of people kind of... Even in the kind of uh, very liberal... Mac world definitely felt judged and like people kind of going like oh it's a bit weird and actually one comic did say to me I don't like it I thought it was interesting that they just went oh I don't like that um, so it, it just the, and then the whole process of putting it on wearing heels they are a fucking nightmare um, like the, so much of it is really arduous and I don't know if you've been doing it all your life and you're more used to it but I thought like if there's a fire here how do, I've got to take my <laughs> shoes off to get out of the building. Like that's a silly thing. But then also on the other on the side on the other side, I felt so good in them, and I felt really like sassy and like sort of powerful in a weird way, and tall and 
and I'm quite tall anyway. So I'm just interested in what are the effects that it has on me and what that what doors that can open, I suppose, creatively. I think. I think you were the first comic who I remember talking about bisexuality on stage, talking about your own bisexuality. Poss- yeah, well, possibly that, that you saw. I don't. Yeah, maybe. I'm sure other comics have done it, but I made a big point of it early on. But it's just because there were so many easy jokes to do about, you know, you're all at risk and all of that stuff that I used to do. So, um, yeah, but I don't talk about it as much these days. But then I don't necessarily identify as bisexual anymore. I I talk about this in the show. I see myself now as pansexual because I think that the gen... God, I'm boring myself. Um, <laughs> the, ge- the, the gender side of it is only part of sexuality and um, an integral part by all means, but I don't think it's the only part of it. So um, publicly I still say bisexual like because it's easier because people know what that is now, but I actually don't think that fully works it out. Um, where, what was the question? Who am I? Well, I, I just think it's interesting because you, you mentioned before about sometimes experiencing homophobic heckling. Mm. And I'm sort of interested in, like, did you ever have or did you feel that you needed to have a kind of a, a put-down toolkit of addressing yeah. homophobic heckling? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I probably was more worried about that than I should have been because um, you don't get lots of it and everyone's generally very nice and understanding these days um, but yeah um, I definitely felt like I'm, I was on edge at first about that side of me in terms of seeing that I had to perhaps be kind of um, combative about it but actually the sort of camp that I try to do is I try and do a warm camp because I think camp can often turn into sort of nasty bitchy kind of camp which um, is a bit dumb now really I just sort of feel it's a bit like alright yeah your shoes are shit and what you know it's, it, I don't I got I got very cross with the gay community when I sort of first started going out that everyone everyone had sort of adopted a personality I felt that it was just sort of come out of will and grace or something like it just, it, it, it didn't feel um, real and true um, so I kind of wasn't that engaged with that sort of side of um, the gay community um, again I can't remember what the original question was well I was interesting I was going to talk to you about camp I think it's interesting that you would say that because I feel that I've certainly met people in the past I, have, I think I know quite a lot of people who are varying degrees of camp and I don't actually really know what the word camp means anymore in no. the incredibly kind of uh, theorised structure of gender and sexuality in which we now live but I certainly in the past I remember meeting someone at college 20 years ago and just feeling like he was so camp that I just felt I hadn't met him I felt I'd met him wearing a mask of someone else now that might well be part and parcel of why it exists and I don't want to offend anyone by talking about it in those terms yeah but um, it's a form of drag that in the same way that I think that like um, like very hetero muscular men that's a form of drag kind of yeah, yeah right it's, it's about yeah it's, a, it's all a mask um, and I think I've just found that like in comedy that people like you to sort of be as close to you as you can get I suppose whilst being funny and, and so when you're doing that kind of I've seen a lot of camp acts trying to do this sort of I'm funny because I'm sassy 
and audiences don't go for it because they go, yeah, all right, but who are you? What's your opinion? Yeah. And I think that's um, what the best camp acts, because that's the thing, I don't want to seem anti-camp because I do, I do love camp and I do use it, but I think it's a tool in an armory of a lot of other things. I think a lot of people in the gay community just went, oh, well, that's a really good way of throwing stuff back at people because they're protecting themselves naturally because it's, they're a threatened people, or at least they were a lot more so. Um, so I can see where that camp thing came from. But it sort of see, it feels a bit done now. So in terms of your persona on stage, to what extent are the you that we see on stage... I, I, think, I think, I posit, that the you we see on stage is the you we see socially. I feel like they're very, very close-knit. The persona is yeah. slightly heightened, but it's yeah. basically you. Yeah. And to what extent is that social and on-stage persona similar to the you on your own persona, you when you're not interacting with other people? Um, similar, yeah, I think it is similar. I think I'm... Um I think I'm a lot kind of as I grow older a lot um, less bothered about sort of um, being funny and like sort of social situations and that kind of thing Um, I feel weirdly I feel a lot straighter than I ever did I've got a girlfriend now which is pretty straight Um, (laughs) pretty straight thing to do Um, and uh, and so I sort of the the camp side of it and the gay side of uh, of that world uh, of that side of my personality seems to be diminishing in my private life and sort of social life but still thrives in my kind of work I suppose but um, I think pretty similar though generally when you say apart from the bodies that I've buried (laughs) when you say when you say it still thrives in your work is that do you ever consider that dynamic that like you are kind of uh, (laughs) I can't believe I say this you are celebrity bisexual Joe Lysis. Do you know what I mean? It's like that's that's a big part of your wiki page. It's a big part yeah. of your, which also weirdly uh, identifies you as a television personality rather than Does a comedian. It? Yeah. Well, there you go. That's um, that's made me very very sad. <laughs> I mean, he does say that you're a comedian, but I think yeah, it's like yeah. the tagline underneath it. Television personality. Television personality. That's an awful thing to call someone. <laughs> no, 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 no. At least you've got a personality, I suppose. If you're a television non-personality. Yeah. Right. <laughs> television non-entity. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is weird. It is a, like because you write a thing and then you use it again and again over a you know, period of a year or so, and your circumstances in your life probably change and your um, desires, wants change, but yet you're still going out presenting this thing. I remember talking to Brendan Burns about um, writing about um, like breaking up. He, I think he did a show when he'd broken up with somebody, and he. Came had really good. It was a really good show because it came from a really angry place, and he got lots of jokes out of that. But he was coming off stage every night, having had a great gig, going, "I'm still thinking about this relationship because I'm talking about it and not growing and getting through it." So I think sometimes it can kind of hold you back a little bit by digging up things that have kind of uh, made you sad or whatever in the past. But um, but yeah, I, I do feel like I'm interested in how much my sort of Sexuality and my identity is my gender identity is sort of changing. Um, I'm trying not to sort of stop it too much and just like stop it na- like naturally, if you know what I mean. So not kind of stop myself from thinking the things I want to think because I feel like I have to think a thing. Doesn't make any sense. Don, 
I've gone where, where I expected to go, which is where you, um, I, I, you do this very good thing where you ask a question, then the comedian answers it, and then you don't say anything, and they keep going <laughs> and then, unravel themselves into... I, what I thought would happen is I would just do something like really... Like I'd say something, and then you wouldn't say anything. I'd say something really appalling, like I'd go, well, I started in Manchester, and uh, I, I, I hate women! <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what would happen. <laughs> Before we, we, we've flown through and we have to wrap up fairly soon, um, I've got loads more to ask, but if anyone else, if you're comfortable with that, if anyone else yeah, would like to ask a question, if there are any questions from the floor, we're more than happy to field them. Yes, I'll need to repeat it for the sake of the recording, but go ahead. Do you like trying to make people laugh when they are wondering whether, whether or not they should be laughing? Um, yeah, I think so. Because I think a lot of... I don't do it as much as other comics do, but I think there are a lot of comics that do that thing where you laugh because it's instinctively you found it funny, and then you go, oh, I shouldn't have laughed at that, there's something wrong about that. But that's the interesting bit, that's where the work's being done to unravel a, something in your mind that might be a prejudice or something. So I think, yeah, I'd, I'd like to do more of that, but I think it takes quite a lot of guts. I really yeah. admire people like Frankie Ball and people like yeah, that. Yeah, that's so just putting sometimes really full-on things in your head. You're laughing and then you go, oh, God, oh. And then as you unravel it, you go, no, but actually he's not said anything technically wrong there. It's just because it's an, a, a brutal image or something. And yeah, so I'd like to do more of it, definitely. Thank you. Anyone else? Is there a particular audience or part of the country you felt particularly hostile, re your sexuality? No, I don't think so. Um, the hostility that I had was... I'm trying to remember where the gig was. It was in the north. It was like near Manchester, but that was because I was gigging around Manchester loads at the time because that's where I started. So, um, no. And what I have found is, in terms of like difficult audiences where I've struggled, is when I went to Melbourne two or three years ago, I really struggled at the shows there. And I don't know why. I think it's because I was trying to be too interactive with them as an audience, and they don't really do that there. And so it took me a while to work that out. I think if I went back now, I'd probably have a bit of a head start. But I found those really tough audiences. But they weren't homophobic. God, that's full of gays, Melbourne. But um, <laughs> it was um, it's tough there. I found those shows tough. I, I listened to your... I watched your, uh, one of your Melbourne gala clips. I don't know if you've done it more than once. But the one I Just saw... One. Yeah, yeah. When you came on and said, you know, you've got this sort of introductory business of this is my voice, it's ludicrous, this is actually me. Yeah. And someone shouts something... And you go, okay, and then get on with it. Yeah. I, I don't know, I might be completely barking the wrong tree here. I thought someone shouted puff. Possibly. I can't remember every gig I've Fine. done, Stuart. Well, um, <laughs> it's on, it's on it YouTube with hundreds happen. of thousands of hits. But like, sometimes people do it because it's, like, it's not actually like, I hate gays. It's just like, oh, a puff, because like, they think that that's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> sure. But it does happen. like it's Because and, often it's just they don't understand that the words have meaning other than what they think which is just like oh they're fun people um, so yeah possibly did but I don't I think I would have remembered that if okay. I'd if I'd, if I'd registered it as poof I can't remember I think okay. I just went I think I did just say hello didn't I because I didn't just moved on yeah I think so yeah maybe maybe they didn't say that at all if anyone would like to watch the clip uh, you can out me interesting that you as a homophobe yeah. <laughs> finally someone said it yeah. <laughs> um not really enough people laughed at that for me to... <laughs> slightly eggy. Um, there's, uh, 
a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Do you have any... This is something because I interviewed Jimmy Carr recently for this show. Ah, uh, yes. And he does a load of NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Oh, and yeah. as a result, has a very ordered mind and gets a lot of shit done and is very successful. Yeah. You strike me as someone who is both happy and productive. Have you got any secret brain training tips? Whether, no, whether no. formalised or just on the basis of advice people are giving you ways of looking at comedy or ways of looking at work? I've had um, a, a, the great privilege and honour of, um, sort of working with a couple of people recently who've been in the industry for ages and I've asked them loads of questions drunk after working with them. So the first was Lee Mack, who I did his um, panel show for Sky and just ended up getting very drunk with him afterwards and sort of going, what... Speaking to someone at my level of my career, what, what advice do you have? Like, where should I go? What should I do? Like, what's the next step? And um, he was saying, when you strip away all of the comedy in your job, what's left? And that's how you kind of have to look at it, because it's a frivolous industry. There's a lot of good things about it, but it can fall away very quickly. And I think that's... I've always stayed in... I've never lived in London. I have somewhere to live in London, but I've never lived in London. And I've never been too involved in the comedy community. Like, I've got friends in the comedy community, but I've got a lot of friends out of it. And I, I make an effort to maintain that and to have friends that don't really give a shit about comedy or my career or have that much interest or keep, keep up to date with what I'm doing. And I think that's really valuable. So, <clears throat> I, in terms of um, kind of maintaining a happy mind, I think it's definitely um, not being too involved in comedy and not putting too many eggs in that basket I think. Uh, in terms of being productive, I don't know uh, really, it's, I find it very difficult to not procrastinate still, but little things like the Pomodoro have really helped, but it's really hard to be creatively um, productive and I sort of, I know Jimmy's really good at it, but I think that's the, he must have learned something in that NLP that really I think I just feel like Jimmy's just naturally just got a work ethic, but also has that sort of thing, oh, that'll work, let's try that. Whereas I think a lot of people go, oh, is that going to... And they don't try it, and there's too much of that internal thing going on. Maybe he's just blocked out a voice, I don't know, in his head, a kind of criti internal critical voice. What review have you read? Have you, do you read your reviews? No. Or have you? Have you ever? No. I have, yeah, and I stopped about three years ago. I... I catch bits of them, um, but I make an effort not to read reviews of anyone, really. Um, it's great, isn't it? Oh, God. I really, <laughs> just I'm plugging from the system. I, I try to like promote that to everyone, particularly in Edinburgh. I know it's really hard at first, but once I stopped, one, searching my name online, and two, um, reading reviews... Which is searching my name, I stopped quite early on actually. So much happier. Actually, that's a really top tip. Don't read it because they're not really for you. They sometimes they probably feel like they're writing them because they want you to read it, but especially if they it, tweet them at you. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, but it, when um, they should be writing it for a audience that are potentially going to see a show and they want to know what's good and what's that's their job. And so, that's it's. If if you read all the reviews, then it filters into your kind of well, what should I be writing and for whom? Um, and it just and it just yeah, any kind of that sort of thing. Even if they're nice, they just sort of feel a bit like icky about me, a bit, a bit dirty that I've read. Them. That's interesting. That like a positive review could some 
you sort of it's a it's a bit like someone patting you on the back. Yeah, it's like, a bit no, like that was fine actually. Bloody ass slicker, like you don't, like a nice one, and then when someone's been horrible, you go, oh, why, "Why have you been like that? How unkind!" I'm just trying my best. So either way, you just I just don't I don't rate it as a profession either. I don't think it's I, I don't I, I don't have any respect for it as a thing. I think it's. Um, a waste of a life, genuinely. Criticism, you mean? Being a critic. I think it's a shame. A um, waste of a life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I, the sort of people that do it, generally, I don't want their opinion to infiltrate my work, basically. So, if you had to hypothetically, and we'll wrap up with this, if you had to review yourself, hmm. What would you what would you say? What things do you I mean just sort of one minute left before we could start hammering. <laughs> um, uh, and for <laughs> the listeners to this podcast might not pick up on the hammering noise, which gives what I just said a very different <laughs> <laughs> If you uh, if you had to honestly review yourself what, what would you pick up on? What, what areas, given your undoubted skill set and very deserved success, what elements of stand-up do you think there's room for improvement in? Well, I would definitely start the review with, um, I am a critic and thus have wasted my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, as you asked for my opinion, um, uh, perfectly fine, charming affable stand-up which won't change much about your life <laughs> I think it's sort of fine it's like oh yeah nice it's like a it's like a getting in a hot tub for a bit I feel like it's like oh yeah fine and then after a while you're like oh, I'm going to piss myself <laughs> that's sort of what I feel like my stand-up's like and are you okay with that does that, does that have a negative yeah, go for aspect to you you're happy to be yeah, to be like, sort of fine yeah I, that's the other thing that Lee Mack said to me actually it's like comics in their heads thing oh, I just had a great show and everyone in there just thought that was the best thing that ever happened to them when most of them are leaving going, oh yeah, that was all right, wasn't it? Like, should we go and get a curry? Like, it's not... The, the, the audience are going, all right, fine, whatever. So you have to sort of separate what you feel, how you felt, felt it went and think about how it affects their lives and it's like an hour of their life. It's not that big a deal. You're not, you're not changing much, but you've all had a bit of fun, basically. That's how I feel about my stand-up. What would you have on your comedy gravestone? Do you know what? I was so... I listened to your Comcom pod with um, Tommy Tiernan and I loved his gravestone, which was... Was it Keats or Yates? The um, Here Lies a Man Whose Name Was Writ on Water. Yeah. It's like, that's amazing. Um, it's been done, mate. I know it's been done. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'd probably have the smiling pile of poo emoji. <laughs> So that was Joe. Thank you to Joe for coming on the show. Do look out for his DVD as and when it's uh, all nicely edited and then released. And, uh, and watch out for his show. You can still catch up with Joe's most recent show, which is entitled rather fabulously, That's the Way Aha Aha Joe Lysit. Aha Aha. I mean... As far as I'm concerned, that closes the book on putting your name in your uh, in a pun in your show. It's the best one I've heard. And you can catch that. I believe he's doing a week only at the Pleasance Grand, this Edinburgh Festival. So get along there and support him. That show is absolutely wonderful. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And you can see him all over the YouTubes as well, all over the Google. 
with his numerous uh, TV appearances. Now, thank you to everyone involved. I'll say again, uh, thank you to Johnny Mouncer. If you have enjoyed this show, you can support it financially. With uh, You can support it by downloading Break Glass in case of emergency and enjoying that. Give me your feedback at uh, info at comedianscomedian.com or indeed uh, at comcompod um, if you've enjoyed that. And feel free to share a link around to that. Um, I, I just, I'm really proud of it. I think it's dead good. So thanks for all your support. Back next week with... I don't know, is it time to unleash the Russell Howard episode? It might be. It really might be. Oh, I hope I hope this isn't just me. In my head, I'm like, this is hands down the best one I've ever done. Maybe it's just as good as all the others, but I don't want to oversell it. I'm very excited about it, so maybe we'll pop that one out next week. Uh, we've got a couple of other goodies and a few in the can that I won't talk about. Uh, we've got some uh, diarised but not yet recorded, so I certainly won't tell you about those yet, but they're pretty exciting. That concludes the podcast. If you're sticking around, I'll talk to you for the waffle in a second. That was the show. This is, listen, there's two things I want to talk to you about with the waffle, and then I'm going to go inside and do a lovely uh, gig that I'm doing at the Octagon Theatre in Yeovil. I'm very much looking forward to So I'll, I'm going to zip in there. You can probably tell from the acoustics that I'm recording this in my car. Such is the new dad lifestyle. I'm also cooking. It's really hot and <laughs> the temperature is increasing rapidly, so I will make this mercifully brief. I want to say a thank you to Ryan, who is a listener, who a uh, fan of the podcast, who raced me from a gig. I opened one gig in London and closed another and arrived at the second one to discover Ryan waiting, panting outside because he, for hijinks, unbeknownst to me, had seen me at one and then raced me across town and won, beaten me. And, uh, and arrived at the second gig. The first one was Old Rope, which you must check out. Brilliant new material night in uh, central London on the first Monday of the first Monday of every week. Yeah, I mean, that is accurate. It's every Monday. Um, but a very, very high level, uh, uh, high standard of acts going along there and trying brand new stuff. I was there as well doing, um, uh, doing some very new stuff of index cards, opening the show. Pop the cards in my bag. You know, some, some, some hits, some misses. I was trying some shorter jokes, not really my forte, but some of them were good. Put them in my bag, legged it across town to discover Ryan waiting for me outside the good ship in Kilburn, where I went on, did a headline set at which I incorporated some of the shorter jokes that had worked from the earlier one. And I felt like I had a documentary film crew following me because I was able to very glibly refer back to Ryan from the stage in a very self-indulgent way going, see, that one worked. Oh, I knew it. Look at that. And it was all, uh, it was all fun and, uh, and loose. It's nice. It's nice doing short jokes and staying loose at the same time. Uh, this is my... It's not, I mean, it's hardly a motto. It's quite, a, it's quite a loose motto. Maybe that's appropriate. So thanks to Ryan. That was a really good laugh. And it made me feel like I had a film crew following me, which reminds me, if you have Netflix, as almost everyone does these days, um, then you can watch Hannibal Takes Edinburgh, which is a documentary made by Hannibal Buress and a team uh, of the first time he went to the... or the second time he went to the Edinburgh Festival. Um, it must have been 2013, I think. Possibly 14. I think it was 13. And uh, apparently I feature in it. I've watched the first bit of it, and it's really enjoyable. I Then Baby Demand's got the better of me. I will catch up with it soon. But apparently I'm in it, uh, and uh, in a podcast capacity, because uh, I'm interviewing Hannibal on the show. So uh, uh, I hope you all check that out. Sounds fun. I've broken Netflix, guys. Uh, although broken in the sense of uh, uh, the Robbie Williams rather than the Kim Card... Was it Kim Kardashian? I don't know about celebrities. Is she a thing? She's a thing, isn't she? Yeah, fine. So, uh, so that's nice. Very nice to appear on that. 
And this is this is what I'll say for the waffle today. It's a, it's a thank you one. I recorded this a couple of weeks ago and then deleted it because I hadn't quite finished the tour. But now that I have completely finished the tour of an hour, I just want to say a really huge thank you to everyone that came along and made it such a success. Uh, very specifically, thank you to all of my cavalry team members uh, who posted for me in their places of work and uh, and where they live, near towns where they live. I'm so, so grateful that at almost every venue I could turn up thinking, well, Johnny's been sorting this out, Sue's been working on this one. It, it's just, it, it makes me feel so special and so lucky, so privileged to arrive to perform in a town knowing that I've got boots on the ground doing good work on the podcast. Thank you to everyone who came along because of the pod. Thank you to everyone who came along just to try out the show or had seen me before and enjoyed it and then, in a, in a surprise twist of fate, got converted to the podcast and has since got in touch to say, hey, I saw you on the tour and then wondered what this podcast was that everyone was talking about and went off and discovered it. So hello to you all. Thank you very much to everyone at Chambers Management, very specifically Breed Kirby. Uh, they're, they're, my, they're my representation and I'm very excited to be with them. Breed and I have worked together for the first time on this tour and she is absolutely legendary. I could not have done it without her. Thank you to Sarsky Anderson for her help in uh, administrative and, and PR ways behind the scenes. Um, you are both absolutely wonderful ladies, and uh, I've got a, got a lot of time for both of you. <laughs> so uh, thanks to those people. Thanks to everyone that came. And I'm just very quickly going to repeat a... Uh, I, I said this on Facebook a couple of... Well, maybe a month ago. And it got a really huge response, but obviously within the small confines of my, my Facebook friends. So I will pricey it for you now. Basically, I sold out uh, the final weekend of the tour. Well, the, the final show was at the Welsh Festival and the preceding weekend, the penultimate shows were at the Soho Theatre. And I sold them all out. Three nights. And that's a huge deal for me. Um, I don't want to come across as too humble here. You know, I believe in myself. The shows play to thousands of people and they all seem to have enjoyed themselves. But there's something very special about that venue. That's why I'm thrilled to be doing the live podcasts from Soho when we do them. But to go there with your own hour of stand-up and for it not just to be warmly received, but to sell out, to bloody well sell out, means a huge deal to me. And it was just, there's a, just a tiny story attached to why... There is a, a, a late-night drinking den not far from that venue called Trisha's, and I sat there with some fellow open spots 10 or 11 years ago, and we were in the first flushes of doing stand-up, and we were all very excited about it, but at the time, these uh, two other acts, who I, who I won't name for now, um, they were pretty bummed out about stand-up, and I was doing my best to perk them up and go, guys, what? I mean, I remember saying something I could almost quote here. What are you talking about? Of course, we're all going to make it. We're all going to be massive. Those guys, I'd, I'd been through the, the street performing slurp. I'd been through the, uh, the street performing route before I'd done a version of becoming a comic. I'd started off passionate about a, a creative thing, a performative thing, but with no idea of how to do it. I'd not known how to do it, but I'd done that really hard. I'd worked hard. I kept my eyes and ears open. I'd paid attention. I'd got good feedback and useful learning from people. And uh, and I got better and better, and I'd risen to eventually being the equivalent of a headliner on the street, I suppose. It doesn't really work like that, but, you know, I had a decent show that I made a living from. So when I started doing stand-up, I had that foreknowledge. I went, yeah, it's just that. You just go out there, you work hard, you believe in yourself, you keep your eyes and ears open, and bash, then you make it. 
So I had all of that self-belief. The two people I was talking to variously went on to become a very successful writer, producer, filmmaker, and a very successful writer, comedian, sketch person with his own show. And, uh, and I did what I did. And I did fine. I did absolutely fine. But I, I'm sure, well, you know from listening to this show, I'm not the only person in comedy to feel like, wow, I, I sort of thought... I would have got further than I have, and I thought it would have been easier than it was, and all those kind of things. I know everyone feels a degree of that. And it, it, it's dangerous, this, because obviously I want to tell you the truth. I've got to open up to you, if no one else you, about, about my expectations and how my own career has gone. And as they say, rare, rare, as I say, rare is the person who starts a podcast because they're incredibly successful. You know, certainly not an indie one like this. It tends to be a thing that people do because they want more from their career or they want more outlets for stuff. You know, well, maybe that's changing. Anyway, I'm saying it's hard to be honest with you because I don't want to come off like I'm going, oh, I thought I'd be massive and actually I'm this loser. I, I thought I'd be really huge and actually I'm doing absolutely fine. And fortunately in the last few years, thanks in no small part to my partner and indeed my therapist and indeed you, I now am very happy I, I am now as successful as I want, almost. I am successful enough and happy enough with that success. And that second part is the key bit. So my point is, oh, yeah, the, the reason I'm saying is uh, it, it's difficult to be honest about that because it sounds like I'm kind of going, oh, I didn't get what I wanted. Actually, I'm really happy. The point of the story is that I said, guys, we're going to be huge. And these two guys went off and became very successful. And I went off and became moderately successful. And so to be arriving at the final night of a sold out Soho theatre run, having finally got that kind of calling card of like, yeah, yes, I just wanted to use it as an opportunity. I mean, A, obviously, to some degree, to just have a tiny little basket in it. But B, to just say to everyone out there who's trying a thing, just don't stop trying your thing. Don't stop working hard and listening and trying to pay attention and trying to accrue knowledge and trying to ask people for advice. <laughs> I'm in any second now. I'm going to say something like dreams can come true. I'm not going to say that. But just keep working. Just keep at it. Turn up. Just keep turning up. I read a, I read a book about parenting that said, you know, all these people who have sort of star wonder children, all the rest of it, you know, the kind of dragon mothers and the people that push their kids, all the rest of it, they're not the heroes. The heroes are everyone that just turns up and sings that song that their baby loves for a thousandth time because you just turn up. So just keep turning up. And on that note, if you want to, I think a, a good tool in your in your arsenal a good weapon in your arsenal if you are someone that wants to keep turning up with whatever your creative endeavor is then i think a good thing for you to do would be to download break glass in case of emergency honestly I've, i listened to the final copy of it and the hairs stood up on the back of my neck on more than one occasion i think you're really going to enjoy it it's comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop it's completely free download it share it with people share the link with people i'd, I'd like to have their email address too and uh, and that's that. That'll do for now. I'm going to go and gig in Yeovil. Never done Yeovil. I'm sure it is every bit as exciting as it sounds. Mm -hmm.